0: it's tech biter worldwide i'm bill Blynn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes that's because we leave out the sports most of the jingles the weather and the commercials podcast number 419 for november 16th 2014 This week, Malwarebytes offers free and paid versions of protective applications that work with your standard antivirus program. I've been trying them out. An interesting combination of events this week caused me to think about net neutrality, rural electrification, and the future of U.S. competitiveness. In short circuits, how to make Pandora stop asking if you're listening, at least for a little while, Yahoo starts making plans to serve targeted video ads, Singles' Day in China beats Black Friday and Cyber Monday combined, and CEO Satya Nadella talks about the future of Microsoft. Malwarebytes has been around for a long time, and I've usually had a free version installed. Recently, though, I decided to pay the relatively small fee to license the paid version of both Anti-Malware Program, version 2, and a newer application called Anti-Exploit, still at version 1.0. These applications aren't intended to replace your antivirus program, but to run alongside them. The prices are reasonable. Anti-malware is available for free or $25 a year, and that covers three computers. Both free and paid versions include anti-malware and anti-spyware, anti-rootkit, and advanced malware removal. The paid version adds malicious website blocking, real-time protection, a faster scanning mode, automatic database updates, and a chameleon driver that prevents malware from tampering with the protective applications. The story is similar for anti-exploit. Both free and paid versions shield all common browsers, Internet Explorer, Firefox, Chrome, and Opera. And they guard against Java exploits. The paid version, also 25 bucks a year for three computers, adds protection for PDF documents, media players, and the ability to add and manage custom protection. In version 1 of the anti-malware product, anti-rootkit was offered separately. Even though it's included in the current version, rootkit scanning is turned off by default because it extends the time needed to run a scan. I recommend turning it on. Malwarebytes uses several methods to identify rootkits and remove them, as well as attempting to repair any damage that the malware may have inflicted on your computer. That, in fact, has always been one of the most attractive features of the Malwarebytes products. Anti-exploit is intended to provide protection against changing threats such as zero-day exploits. That term simply means that a new threat with no signature that a standard antivirus program would be able to identify has popped up. It's a small application, and you might find yourself wondering if it's working. Anti-Exploit Premium creates what Malwarebytes calls multiple protective layers, and it tries to identify attempts to bypass security features that are built into the operating system. It also tries to monitor activity in the system's memory, particularly any attempt to run code for memory, and block attacks on the protective application itself. You may wonder if it's working because these kind of attacks are rare. But for 25 bucks a year for three computers, purchasing the premium version seems like a bet worth taking. Malwarebytes does provide an application you can download for testing. You can run it in one of two modes, safe and rogue. Run in safe mode, it's ignored by anti-exploit. But when you run the version that attempts to replicate malware in action, anti-exploit steps in and kills the process instantly. Based on what I've seen so far, the bottom line is five cats, Malwarebytes provides impressive protection at a low price. For 50 bucks a year for three computers, that's for both applications, in addition to whatever you pay for your antivirus application, the two Malwarebytes applications seem to be a pretty good investment. Anti exploit Premium is quiet most of the time, it doesn't interfere with system operations, and it offers impressive protections. Besides, there's the Malwarebytes website, which has been the best source for a long time for anybody who's seeking advice on how to avoid or remove malware. You'll find additional details on the Malwarebytes website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. I hope you'll forgive me as I fly off on philosophical and historical tangents this week. Several events occurred almost simultaneously early in the week, and these caused me to think about net neutrality, the process that brought electricity to rural areas of the nation starting in the 1930s, and the inventors of the internet. President Obama has finally added his voice to the millions of others who have written to the Federal Communications Commission in support of net neutrality on the Internet. Today, there's a lot that's wrong with the Internet, and creating a fast lane would simply make things worse. This isn't a political issue, though, and it's sad that it's being made a political issue. I say that it's needlessly being made a political issue because most people, whether they know a lot about net neutrality or not, Are in favor of it. The University of Delaware conducted a poll. You'll see the results on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The poll asked whether people favored the proposal by FCC Commissioner Tom Wheeler to allow companies to pay more to obtain better internet speeds for their services. This is generally known as the fast lane approach. Even those who have never heard of the proposal, once it was explained to them, think it's a bad idea. 81% of the respondents said they opposed or strongly opposed the scheme. And those who have heard a lot about the proposal are even more overwhelmingly against it. 86% either opposed or strongly opposed. So, my point that it shouldn't be politicized rests on this simple fact. When more than 4 out of 5 Americans are on one side of an issue, that issue clearly cuts across party lines. And there's this. The poll, which has a margin of error of three percentage points, also asked about political affiliation. And the results showed that the opposition to the plan was about the same among Republicans and Democrats. So if you hear somebody trying to make this an argument about Republicans versus Democrats, just follow the money. And that led me to where are we now? Residents who live in many European and Asian countries currently have Internet service that is faster, sometimes by an order of magnitude, than what we have in the United States. And they pay considerably less for that access. A fast lane would provide more income for a few companies, but at a higher cost to all Internet users. At a time when nations are competing for intelligent people, and when internet access is a condition that businesses consider when selecting locations, we, as a country, should be doing everything possible to expand the reach of the internet and to lower the cost. You may note that some of the big players in this net neutrality discussion aren't saying very much. Google and Facebook, for example, silent. They are two of the largest and they are not pushing for net neutrality. They might not even particularly want net neutrality, and you may wonder why. The answer is pretty simple. Let's go back to 1998. AltaVista was the largest, most successful, and most powerful search engine on the planet. Then a small upstart called Google appeared. The founders didn't have much money, but they had some good ideas. After existing in name only as a part of Yahoo!, even the Alta Vista name is now gone. Type altavista.com into your browser's address bar. You'll find yourself at Yahoo. Had net neutrality not existed in 1998, what might have happened? Well, Alta Vista could have held on to its near monopoly. So, if in the future net neutrality is not assured, it's likely that there are going to be small companies with big new ideas that are going to be thwarted. The next big Google or Facebook might never happen. And I see some parallels here to rural electrification. It happened long before the internet, back in the 1930s and 40s. The Rural Electrification Act provided federal loans for installation of electrical distribution systems that served rural areas of the United States. At that time, electricity was available only in cities. REA construction crews strung wires, and REA electricians added wiring to houses and barns. The standard service, you'll still find it in some older homes, provides 60-amp, 230-volt service to a fuse panel. you got a 60-amp circuit for a stove, a 20-amp circuit for the rest of the kitchen, and two or three 15-amp circuits for lighting throughout the rest of the house. And they had technological problems to solve back then, not the least of which was that the high-voltage distribution system in cities didn't work well in rural areas. In cities, distribution used 2,300-volt lines, but after about four miles, the voltage drop became unacceptable. REA cooperatives elected to use 6,900-volt distribution lines. Although this required more expensive transformers to drop the voltage back to household levels, it also allowed runs of 40 miles instead of 4. Today, a similar digital divide affects the internet. In cities, high-speed service, high-speed at least by U.S. standards, is commonly available. But in rural areas, the only option is often dial-up or expensive Wi-Fi that isn't really that fast. There's been talk of using frequencies freed up by moving UHF broadcast television signals to a different part of the spectrum. Additionally, Google and Microsoft have conducted some experiments with what's called super Wi-Fi, that even though it's not Wi-Fi, could bring over-the-air speeds of 20 to 100 megabits to rural areas. We need the equivalent of the REA today to bring ubiquitous internet service to rural areas. And to all parts of town. Yes, there are parts of big cities that really aren't very well served. So we need to level the playing field within the United States. President Obama is very late to the Net Neutrality Party, but it's good to see he's here. Saying that the internet has unlocked possibilities we could barely imagine a generation ago, Obama noted that until now, most internet providers have treated internet traffic equally. That equality makes for a robust internet, he says, and allows for new business ideas to be launched and flourish. In Obama's words, that's why I am asking the Federal Communications Commission to answer a call of almost 4 million public comments and implement the strongest possible rules to protect net neutrality. Because the FCC is an independent agency, the president's opinion carries no more weight than yours or mine. Noting the rising use of mobile devices, Obama called on the FCC to make its rules fully applicable to mobile broadband, while recognizing the special challenges that come with managing wireless networks. You know, the Federal Communications Commission was originally constituted back in the 20s to bring order to broadcast radio. In those early days, a radio station could broadcast on any frequency it wanted to, with whatever power it had available. Stations moved often to get away from interference or to interfere with a competing station. The FCC's rules eliminated that nonsense and eventually provided regulatory services for many types of communication. The FCC mandated telephone neutrality many decades ago. They did that so that the customer of one phone company could place a call to someone who used a different phone company. Just imagine the chaos that would exist now if those regulations had not been instituted. And that caused me to start thinking about how the heck we got here in the first place. People such as Vint Cerf, he was a program manager for the United States Department of Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which funded various groups to develop TCPIP technology. More on that in a second. And Bob Kahn who was instrumental in the invention of the transmission control protocol, that's the TCP part, and the internet protocol, that's the IP part. Combined, those are the fundamental communications protocols at the heart of the internet. So these are the two guys who essentially invented the internet. And yes, there were a lot of other people who worked on a lot of other parts and pieces but certain con say that one government official stands out when it comes to making the Internet available to the general public. The government official who surf and con credit with his feet is none other than... Drumroll here, please. Al Gore. And yes, in a poorly worded reply to Wolf Blitzer on CNN in 1999, Gore said that he took the initiative in creating the Internet. But never did Gore really claim credit for inventing the Internet. I've been reading Walter Isaacson's The Innovators, and on the day that Barack Obama announced his support for net neutrality, serendipity led me to read Isaacson's account of Gore's contribution to the Internet as we know it. I quote Isaacson, In 1986, Gore launched a congressional study that looked at various topics, including creating supercomputer centers, interconnecting the various research networks, increasing their bandwidth, and opening them up to more users. It was chaired by the ARPANET pioneer Len Kleinrock. Gore followed up with detailed hearings that led to the High Performance Computing Act of 1991, that was actually known as the Gore Act, and the Scientific Advanced Technology Act of 1992. These allowed commercial networks, such as AOL, to connect with the research network run by the National Science Foundation, and hence to the Internet itself. After he was elected vice president in 1992, Gore pushed the National Information Infrastructure Act of 1993, and that made the Internet widely available to the general public and moved it into the commercial sphere so that its growth could be funded by private as well as government investment. That's all from Walter Isaacson's book. So, Gore didn't really invent the Internet, and he never really claimed that he did. During the political controversy that erupted after that CNN interview, even Newt Gingrich came to Gore's defense. Gingrich said, It's something Gore had worked on for a long time. Gore is not the father of the Internet, but in all fairness, Gore is the person who, in the Congress, most systematically worked to make sure we got to an Internet. Newt Gingrich's words quoted in Walter Isaacson's The Innovators. So without invoking any political hysteria, could we all just simply agree that Al Gore didn't invent the internet, but that he was instrumental in expanding the scope of the internet so that people like you and I could have access to it? As one of the early adopters of the public internet, I was around when services such as Archie and Veronica, Gopher and Jughead, were Google before Google was invented. This was before graphical user interfaces, back when text was just text, 80 characters wide, 25 lines tall, sometimes 120 characters wide and maybe about 40 lines tall. When Telnet was king, when Usenet was used for extended discussions, when IRC was used for quick messages and email, of course, it's been there since the beginning. A lot has changed in the years since 1985, when the Internet, which was developed by a 30-year project involving government, business, and universities, began to be made public. In the intervening nearly 30 years, we have seen the demise of Archie, Veronica, Gopher, and Jughead. We have seen the rise and fall of Netscape. We have seen the first gigantic search engine, AltaVista, be replaced by Google. We've seen online shopping, seemingly hundreds of thousands of mobile apps that rely on the internet, and the kind of connectedness that perhaps only a few dreamers saw in the distant future way back then. Most of this has been the result of open internet policies. Policies that are currently in danger. (laughs) In short circuits, if you listen to music using Pandora, you may occasionally see a message that asks if you're still listening. The service says that the message is displayed when you haven't interacted with the player for a while. I'm not sure what a while is, but it often seems to be around 30 minutes or so. Pandora uses this to avoid streaming music into empty rooms because the service pays royalties based on the number of selections played at the number of people listening to them. So if you start playing Pandora at work and leave it running when you go home for the day, the music will stop and the message will be displayed. Since we pay full royalties on every song we play, Pandora says on its website, having a timeout interval will enable us to stop from streaming endlessly to unattended devices. If you're using the free service, you just need to click somewhere on the Pandora music player and the message won't be displayed. Or if you upgrade to the paid service, the timeout period increases, but it isn't eliminated. The paid service also eliminates ads that listeners to the free service occasionally hear. Another option for creating longer listening periods involves interacting with an advertisement. This usually takes just a minute or two and eliminates reminders for the following four hours. Ads are still played for those who use the free service, but you won't be bugged for half a workday. And if you find the reminders just too annoying to deal with, you'll find add-ons for most browsers so you can have the browser emulate the occasional click on the Pandora interface. Yahoo has acquired Brightroll, a system that delivers video advertising. The cost of acquisition, $640 million. Last year, Yahoo spent a little over $1 billion to acquire Tumblr. The money comes from the initial public offering by Alibaba, but CEO Marissa Meyer says that her intent is to pay out most of the money to shareholders. And the term a little might be a little misleading. By A little over $1 billion, I meant $1,100,000,000. The $100,000,000 constitutes that a little part. Yahoo still owns a chunk of Alibaba, and Meyer says the company is exploring ways to sell off the rest of its shares, but to do so in a way that will dodge as much of the tax burden as possible. The purchase of Brightroll is intended to give marketers an easy way to purchase video ads on a vast array of websites, and to do so essentially in real time. Yahoo will also stream one live music performance per day on the new service as part of a deal with Live Nation. Live Nation was spun off from Clear Channel in 2005. Brightroll expects net revenues this year in excess of $100 million. It delivers video ads programmatically in an effort to place the right video in front of a computer or mobile user at exactly the right time. The technique targets ads by age, geographic area, and other information. Political parties use the company's services in this month's election in an effort to direct ads specifically to voters. This is a technology that's expected to grow significantly in the next few years. of Alibaba, and I just was, the online company had a big day on November 11th. It's a big sale day in China. The numbers of the date are all ones, one one slash one one. And it's essentially a celebration of the individual, Singles Day. Marketers promote it as the day on which consumers should buy something nice for themselves. And apparently it works. Sales were something like nine billion dollars. That's more than is spent in the U.S. on Black Friday, also known as the con game after Thanksgiving, and on Cyber Monday, also known as the steal time from your employer to do your holiday shopping day, combined. The event in China, in fact, turned out to be the biggest internet shopping day ever. China's online commerce spending is higher than what's spent in the United States, in large part because the population of China is around 1,357,000,000 people, that of the United States, is about 316 million people. By 2020, with increasing prosperity in China, its economy is expected to be larger than the combined economies of the United States, Britain, France, Germany, and Japan. The new CEO of Microsoft seems to be trying to figure out how to best position the company. The company offers operating systems, applications, hardware, both phones and tablets, game consoles, corporate software, and online computing, and probably a few other things I forgot about. An account by Nick Wingfield in the New York Times describes a recent meeting that Nadella held with a small group of journalists. Wingfield writes that Nadella used the phrase, getting stuff done, at least seven times in 15 minutes. The article discusses where Microsoft will go in the future. Nadella is seeking to define the company's identity more clearly to both employees and the outside world, explaining how its sprawling technology assets are not a disjointed jumble, but rather reinforce each other. With the exception of Xbox, which he's praised but admits it is outside the company's core mission, Mr. Nadella believes that Microsoft's focus on productivity is what distinguishes it from its competitors. Wingfield says that Nadella sees Apple's position clearly as a company that sells devices. Google as a company that's all about data and advertising. Microsoft's identity, Wingfield writes, is about making products that empower others in their work and their personal lives. In Nadella's words, we want to be the tools provider, the platform provider. That's the core identity. The full article, and it is an interesting one, is on the New York Times website. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blynn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.